Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. At the time, I knew it was towards the end. And I knew from seeing others that I was going downhill slowly. What happens when a Fontan patient needs a tune-up? What kinds of procedures might a Fontan patient need after living with a Fontan heart? What can we learn from an experienced Fontaner who might be facing multiple medical procedures? Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and your host. I am also a heart mom to Alexander, who was born with a single ventricle heart and who is 26 years old, and the reason why I started this podcast. I'm very excited about today's show to feature a special heart warrior. Today's show is entitled Leslie's Big Day, Fontan Revision, Cox Maze Procedure, and Pacemaker Implantation. Leslie Castro is a 48-year-old former single ventricle patient from Pennsylvania. She was born with tricuspid atresia, pulmonary stenosis, and multiple other heart defects. And she had the classic Fontan at the age of 12 in 1985. She is almost two years post-transplant. Prior to transplant, Leslie had a very complicated journey with her heart. In just one day, she underwent a Fontan revision, Cox maze procedure, and pacemaker implantation. She also experienced arrhythmias and tried a range of medications to control her symptoms. Ultimately, the Fontan revision was unsuccessful, which led to her receiving a transplant from a hepatitis C-positive intravenous drug user. Fortunately, today, Leslie's doing very well, and she's here to talk to us about her medical journey. You may remember Leslie from her previous show on the classic Fontan and the hepatitis C organ donation show. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Anna Leslie. I'm happy to be here again. Thank you, Anna. Well, I'm happy to have you back on the program to talk about something that's really complicated and most of us do not want to think about. We don't want to think about having multiple procedures, but I think it's something that's really common. Let's get right into it. You have such a complicated medical history. How old were you when you needed the Fontan revision? At the time I had the Fontan revision in 2005, I was 31 years old and living in Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, as a military spouse. Okay, so you were in Hawaii. Hawaii is not known for doing Fontan revisions. No, it's not. Wow. However, I didn't have the Fontan revision directly in Hawaii. I was offered to have the Fontan revision in Hawaii or have it in a different location of the country. 
Tell us about some of the warning signs that you noticed that led you to be aware of the fact that something was wrong and you probably needed a Fontaine revision. In October 2004, I went to Lucille Packard Children's Hospital for a cardiac cath and ablation because I was feeling tired all the time. Mm -hmm. My extremities were bluish and my friends, neighbors, and students were noticing these changes as well as I was having arrhythmias. Mm -hmm. And so after the procedure by Dr. Van Hare, I returned to my room and in walked Dr. John Lamberti, pediatric pediatric cardiac surgeon. Yeah, he's a legend. Okay. Yes. So he explained to me who he was Mm -hmm. and that my heart was completely stopping at six-second intervals. Oh. Yes. That's scary. It is scary. It felt like my heart was beating from 110, 120 beats to nothing. Someone slamming on the brakes and having a gasp of air. Wow. Okay, that's not a good sign. He also explained that I would not be able to have a heart transplant because my heart would not last long enough to be on the transplant list. Oh, wow. Okay. So now things are looking really dire. Correct. And the only option at that point was to have the Fontan revision, the Cox maze three procedure and the pacemaker implant. Wow. So it was a triple, like a trifecta. <laughs> you did all three things. Correct. Oh, forget about it. Okay. So we needed the pacemaker implantation because even with the Fontaine revision, he suspected you would still have some arrhythmias and the Cox maze three was to try and stave off as many of those arrhythmias as possible, right? Right. And basically I was given about six months to live, if that. They were extremely. If you didn't have the procedure? If if I didn't have the procedure and if I didn't make it to the scheduled surgery date, it was six months or less. Okay. Because of being a military spouse Mm -hmm. and living in Hawaii, there was some red tape that needed to be done prior to me having the surgery, whether it be in Lucille Packard or Hawaii. Or choosing to go to Chicago Memorial Children's Hospital, which is now known as Lurie's Children's Hospital of Chicago. Right. Okay. So you did have a few options, but you said that there might be some red tape with the military that you would have to go through. Was there a fear that maybe all of that red tape might take longer than the six months they were thinking you actually had? I was basically a ticking time bomb. They weren't sure if I was going to live the next day, the next Mm -hmm. hour, the next minute. Dr. Lamberti was like, we can do the surgery here. You can stay here and I'll do the surgery. Or if you want to have it done in Hawaii, I will gladly go to Hawaii and have the surgery there. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Wow. Was he your doctor the entire time you were growing up or something? Dr. Lamberti did his residency in Pittsburgh Children's Hospital 
I believe, with Dr. Ralph Sievers. Uh-huh. And he more than likely knew me as a child, whether it be as a baby. I'm not 100% sure. But he recognized some correlation mm-hmm. when I told him that I knew Ralph Sievers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it sounds to me like he was indicating to you that it would be better to do surgery now rather than putting it off. Correct. However, being very young still, I said, I researched this. I would like to know how many procedures you have done. Because I believe Dr. Constantine Mavrudis, Dr. Carl Backer, and Dr. Barbara Deal did more procedures and their success rate was a bit better. And he explained to me, yes, if you want to go to Chicago, I'll gladly talk to them. And that's what he did. Wow. You know, I love that. He totally put his own ego aside so that you could have the doctors that you felt you would have the best chance with. Yes, but for him, he knew that I knew what I was talking about. I explained to him that I researched it, that I knew about this surgery since 1998, that I had talked to Dr. Ralph Sievers about this surgery, mm-hmm. and that he was more than confident to sign over the papers and contact Dr. Constantine Mavrudis. And that's exactly what I did. I went to Chicago. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Leslie, before the break, we learned about your Fontaine revision and how that was your big day. No wonder, having three major procedures like that, but... Now we're going to talk about what else happened on that day. So we know that you had a Fontaine procedure. We know that there was a Cox maze procedure and a pacemaker to be done as well. So I think most people who listen to the program already know what a pacemaker is, but maybe not everybody has heard of the Cox maze procedure. So can you explain that procedure to us? Yes. The surgery was named after Dr. James Cox. And the procedure was performed in 1987, but mostly done by few pediatric cardiac surgeons in the United States, one being Dr. Constantine Mavrudis. By 2004, Dr. Constantine Mavrudis, Dr. Carl Backer, and Dr. Barbara Deal successfully completed 80 surgeries on congenital heart patients. That's a lot of surgeries. 
Yes. I'm guessing that you saw some kind of literature about this. I did. I had been researching since 1998. I knew that something had to be done. I was having severe arrhythmias. Mm -hmm. And apparently this must be something that's common with single ventricle patients for them to have done 80 of these procedures. Correct. The Coxmace procedure involved a complicated set of incisions made in a maze-like pattern on the left and right atria to permanently interrupt the abnormal electrical signals or sometimes the scar tissue irritating the heart that can cause irregular heartbeats or atrial fibrillation. Okay, so we know that Eufontianers have mostly had two or three surgeries, at least. Some of Eufontianers have had more than that. So it's not surprising that there should be scar tissue that forms on the heart. But I guess it must be so common that now they realize that this Cox maze procedure is one of the potential ways to remedy at least some of those arrhythmias, right? Right. Uh This surgery was known as the cut and sew procedure. (laughs) Well, Cox may sound so much better than cut and sew. Oh, my gosh. Yes. My son had a modified maze procedure. Now I'm curious, was it a Cox maze procedure? Well, what happened was after the procedure that I had in 2005, there were more revisions of the Cox Mm -hmm. procedure. So they had Cox maze four. And they had different upgraded procedures of the maze. Right. Okay. So the maze procedure seems to be something that's fairly common with you single ventricle patients when you're already having open heart surgery because they can do that ablation. For those of you who don't know, a maze procedure is an ablation that is actually done on the heart to try and eliminate some of the arrhythmias that a patient is having. Can you talk to me about some of the arrhythmias? It sounds like you're kind of going into heart block where your heart was completely stopping, which is really, really scary. (laughs) Good grief. But then it would start back up again. It sounds like it was almost like what you envision a car when a car starts to die and then kaput, it stops and then it's sputtering to an end and then you're able to somehow get it jump started again. Correct. Exactly how it was. So Exactly. Yes. Okay. So you also talked about having certain medications to try and deal with the arrhythmias. Talk to us about some of the medications that you took and when you took them. Basically, in 1997, I started having symptoms Mm -hmm. such as heaviness as well as discomfort in my chest area. And my heart was beating around 110 beats per minute. But I just chalked it up to working too much, 40 hours a week and taking college level classes. Mm -hmm. But by January 1998, I was admitted to the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital for arrhythmias. I started off with supraventricular tachycardia. And as time went on, I basically had tachycardia, ventricular tachycardia, supraventricular tachycardia, and right before the Fontan revision, I was basically in bradycardia 
Mm. on a daily basis. From 1998 to February 2005, I basically exhausted a number of antiarrhythmic medications, such as atenolol, mm-hmm. amiodarone, procanamide, which they don't even use anymore because of the severe side effects, rhythmol, to name a few of the antiarrhythmic drugs. Along yeah. with taking those antiarrhythmic drugs, I had numerous cardioversions, too many to even count. Oh, wow. That I stopped going to the hospital because there was nothing that they could do, just cardiovert me continuously every day. Oh, gosh. People who have had cardioversions have told me it feels like you're being kicked in the chest by a horse. Yes. Yes. I can't imagine going through that more than once. I've had multiple and some of them very unsuccessful. Oh, and I, that's hard to the point where it almost cost me my life several wow. times. Okay. Wow. Okay. So you were going and, through all of that from 1998 to 2005, but in 2004, you had a catheterization and an ablation at that time. So even yes, I actually, ablation, you still had arrhythmias? I actually had three unsuccessful ablations wow. for EP studies. Wow. The last one was Lucille Packard in 2004. Wow. And I was basically told there wasn't anything more to do except for have the revision. Okay. So you got your Cox maze procedure. It did not get rid of all the arrhythmias. You had a pacemaker. What was the result of you getting the pacemaker? I mean, was that at least something that was helpful for you? Yes, I needed the pacemaker. Even though I had the Cox maze procedure for arrhythmias, it didn't mean that it would cure my arrhythmia issues mm-hmm. completely. Okay. There was always a possibility that my arrhythmias would return, and they did. So a dual chamber pacemaker was placed in my lower left abdomen, and the leads or wires were placed on the left and right atrium. My heart was 100% paced by the pacemaker. And because I was 100% paced all of the time, I needed a pacemaker battery replacement every six years. I had a total of three pacemakers. And right before the transplant, I was having bradycardia again and tachycardia. So you were having the bradycardia even though you had a pacemaker inserted and the pacemaker should have been pacing your heart? Yes. (laughs) Is that because your heart was just wearing out? My heart was giving out completely. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. 
If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Leslie, we've been on a roller coaster ride with you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Surgeries, ablations, cardioversions, all these different medications, and nothing, nothing was curing your heart defects, which we know it's not cured, but I mean, it wasn't even really giving you the kind of quality of life that you would expect after enduring all those different procedures, the medications, everything. So how long was this constellation of procedures successful in actually keeping you healthy? So basically, the Fontan vision, the Cox maze procedure, and the pacemaker implantation lasted only 14 years. Well, that actually is a little better than what I was afraid you were going to tell me. (laughs) After everything you just said, I was thinking she had better not say it only lasted for a year or two. So 14 years. Okay. So you have with a few bumps in the road. Okay. You got 14 years of, I can work, I can enjoy my life. You weren't bed bound. You weren't having severe edema or anything that would prevent you from being able to live a quality life. Is that to an extent? To an extent. So to speak. Okay. Okay. So you had the Fontan, you had the Cox Maze, you got your pacemaker, you're a hundred percent paced. And after you recovered, which I'm sure took a good year just to recover from something that extensive. You did start to lead a good quality life again. Tell me about the warning signs that you had that told you, oh, no, this isn't working. So in 2010, I ended up having five coils put in because I had several collaterals. And when the doctor came out after the surgery, she said, Leslie, I can only put five coils in. It's too dangerous to even consider putting in any more. And you needed a lot more. Wow. This was five years after you had your Fontaine revision. They must have done an echo or something to let them know that your body was producing all these extra blood vessels that needed to be coiled off. Well, actually, what happened was I started becoming tired. Mm. and lethargic. I wanted to sleep all the time. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sleep at work, but I worked every day, constantly, Mm -hmm. 40 hours a week. My coworkers were like, I can't believe that you're still working, (laughs) going day after day after day, even after the revision. And before the revision, I worked every day. Okay, so you're starting to get tired all the time. You know something's wrong because apparently you thrive on having a good work ethic and you must have enjoyed what you were doing to be there every single day and to have the level of conscientiousness that you did. But if you're almost falling asleep at your desk and your coworkers are wondering how you're still making it, you knew it was time to see the doctor and see what was going on, right? Right. 
for the coils, yes. Mm-hmm. I knew it was time for something to be done. Right. So what so. tests did they do to enable them to know that you needed to have the coils? Cardiac catheterization done. Oh my gosh. Okay. So they actually had to do a catheterization. And that's yes. when they saw all these extra little blood vessels that your body was producing to try and help you get more oxygen. Correct. And they placed the coils via cath. Okay. Well, that was good. At least they could do that via the cath. But they only got to do five before they said, oh my goodness, we can't do any more, even though she needs more. So what did they tell you was going to be the next step after that? It was done in San Antonio. And she said, Leslie, be blessed to be still living. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Oh, okay. So in other words, make the most of what time you have. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's not what you want to hear. (laughs) I've been told it many times throughout my life. So I said, okay, no problem. Okay. (laughs) I'll I'll go on Mm -hmm. with my life. And then I ended up moving back to the East Coast from Texas in 2013, because I knew eventually that I would need a heart transplant. So I worked from 2013 to 2018. However, in 2015, Dr. George Ruiz wanted me to have a cardiac cath, and he thought there had been some possible things going wrong. I didn't have the cath. I continued to work and continued to the point where I knew there was something wrong. Okay. So this doctor says, we know something's wrong. I want you to have the cath and you decided not to. Why did you decide not to? It seems like you've been pretty good at following doctor's advice. Even if you go to a different doctor, you have no problem with standing up to medical authority, which good for you, Leslie, (laughs) and seeking other information and seeking care in other places if you don't feel that you're going to get the level of care you need. So why did you decide not to get the catheterization when he suggested it? At the time, I knew it was towards the end, and I knew from seeing others that I was going downhill, slowly. At first, I started having fluid retention in my ankles, and then over the years, with diuretic increase, my fluid went from my ankles and moved to my abdomen. That's My stomach felt as if I was going to explode at any minute. My stomach ached and throbbed. Not only did my stomach throb, but my back did as well. Well, sure, because you got all that extra weight that you really didn't need to have on you. (laughs) And I imagine you were on Lasix and all kinds of stuff, but the fluids just weren't coming off. Correct. Towards the end, I was carrying 40 pounds of fluid oh in my, my abdomen. Oh, gosh. That's worse than being pregnant. Yes. Yes. Wow. And because of the diuretics, I craved salt. Sure. Like, no tomorrow. Sure. It, I never seemed to have a balance. My oxygen level decreased slowly. Mm-hmm. And it was harder for me to walk up a hill or even flight of stairs. Sure. 
my oxygen went from the mid 90s to the high 60s without oh my gosh that's a huge dramatic change without an oxygen tank right right just on room air okay so now you really know something is wrong when you've gotten correct numbers like this and being an educator i also knew that there were cognitive issues okay my cognitive skills started going Mm -hmm. as well for example in my classroom instead of telling my students place your homework on the back table in the basket it will come out as place your homework on the floor in the basket. Oh, no. Very mild mistakes, but noticeable and reoccurring more frequently. The worse my health declined. And so my students would look at me strange (laughs) and and they were kindergartners. So I would always come up with an excuse and I would say, just seeing if you were paying attention to me, And remember, the homework goes on the back table in the basket. So you could hear yourself make the mistake. You could look at their puzzled faces and realize you said something wrong and you could self-correct. Correct. But it was getting harder. It was getting harder. Okay. I started having mild TIAs. I had syncope. My extremities were bluish like they were for the classic Fontan and the Fontan revision. I became lightheaded, dizzy. My appetite decreased. My emotional state was all over the place by now. Sure. Because I knew that I only had one alternative left, Mm -hmm. and that was transplantation. Oh, my goodness, Leslie. Well, this is scary that she went through so much to have that really big procedure and only get, well, almost a decade and a half of good time before you knew that you had the transplant and that was it. That was your last option. Tell us about the kind of advice that you would give to other heart warriors who have traveled a similar path. I've noticed if you have any of these side effects, don't ignore them. Mm-hmm. Go to the cardiologist, talk to him or her, and let them know. If they don't want to listen to you or if they brush you off, continue to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. And if that hospital doesn't work for you, go to a different one. Yeah. And keep going, because I did. More than one time, more than one hospital, even for the revision I went through, hurdles just to get what I needed. And I needed the revision at that time. And when it came to the transplant, I jumped hurdles. And basically, I was downright demanding, bossy, (laughs) you name it. I was not a person to be around at that point. (laughs) I was going to get what I wanted. But if that's the way it is for you, to get a transplant or to get the next procedure, then so be it. I want you to advocate for yourself in in whatever manner to have a successful life so that you are able to spend more time with your family and friends. I guess I was very adventurous and somewhat (laughs) impulsive. Let's go. Let's do a new surgery. 
And it helped, Dr. Ralph Seavers said. Someone has to be a leader and the others will follow through. Well, absolutely. Somebody has to take a chance so that the doctors can see if this can work. And life is a gamble. But for you guys, it's a gamble almost every day, (laughs) Leslie. You guys can (laughs) be on their feet trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And just you by yourself have probably been a huge lesson to so many residents and doctors and people who are trying to puzzle this out. Because let's face it, even though they have maybe done 80 of these procedures, that's just a drop in the bucket. There's still so much more that needs to be learned and so many more procedures that have to be done before you can actually overgeneralize, wouldn't you say? Yes. And even today, I still help the transplant team with medications because I have severe allergies. And Mm. so by learning from me and letting me teach them, hey, this is not working. It doesn't work for every patient. Mm -hmm. This is what happens. This is what I've seen and experienced. They are more willing to listening. Yeah. Leslie, thanks for coming on the program and sharing your experience with us. Here you are so many decades later. You're very articulate. You certainly do know how to teach people how to be a good advocate because You've done it yourself for so many years. And I commend you for letting the doctors try some things. It's because of people like you that kids like my son are still here. Because really, you guys are the leaders. You guys are the ones who are letting us know what's possible. And I mean, God bless you. It's not easy. No, it's not easy. But I'm still here. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful too. I'm thankful and I feel blessed you came on the program. So thank you so much. And friends, I will put links to Leslie's other shows in the show notes so you don't have to hunt around for them just in case you haven't had a chance to hear those too. So thanks, Leslie. I appreciate you coming back on the program. Thank you again. Well, that's all for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen to our show. That will help other people to know what they can expect with Heart to Heart with Anna. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. 